T. That was Omeo Life by Walt Whitman. And perhaps like myself, um, you heard that first in Dead Poets Society, the Robin Williams rendition. Um, regardless of if it's very well known or not, that poem is beautiful, obviously, in its simplicity and its contemplation, its introspection, the way in which it, hmm, should I say stream of consciousness in a way? Um, it's kind of in a similar way that Hamlet does when he comes back and he thinks about what he said in the in the prior line and then he says no that's not quite right and then he goes on to contradict himself and go back and forth in this internal dialogue in some ways with himself and again um, I think there are some interesting historical there's an interesting historical context that Walt Whitman was writing in. So Walt Whitman lived primarily in the 19th century. Some other, some other developments in America of the 19th century were the end of the frontier. So we had the Wild West, and that really, the peak of that was kind of towards the end of the 19th century. If you read East of Eden, Steinbeck has a great chapter about coming to the end of the railroad as it is, the closing of the West, where there's no more frontier, there's no more place to explore and to manifest this manifest destiny. That really invigorated the American spirit and it is actually Walt Waldo Emerson, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who called Whitman America's poet. Um, Emerson has an essay called the, it's either the poet or the American scholar, I can't remember which one it is, but in it he describes what makes the American artist and the American thinker, more broadly, different than what is found in Europe. In some ways, a lot of Europeans thought of America as lacking any culture or any real artistic ability or inspiration. And if we take Emerson at his word, Emerson is sometimes thought of by some as America's only real philosopher. Right? I was really into the transcendentalists at one point, uh, Emerson and Thoreau, and I was kind of disillusioned with them because they are an amazing group of people in that New England culture of that time. But it's hard to pin down exactly what they're saying, and I'm sure that's in some ways the point. But 
Thoreau and Emerson were central in forming this American persona, this American identity. And Whitman is thought of many as the quintessential American poet. And so we look at we look at Whitman and we look at what he might have been experiencing in his life. The closing of the West. The Civil War. And then Leaves of Grass was 1892. So I'm not sure off the top of my head if he lived up until World War I was kicking off. But World War I, we see in this poem the struggle with personal identity. At the end of the poem, he says, life exists and identity. And I think what he means there is personal identity. Because if we think of this in the context of World War I, that was the moment when a lot of people, primarily Europeans, lost their idea of individual nobility the great man theory that was really central in all of the Napoleonic Wars, the charismatic leaders like Napoleon, like the kings and the queens of old Europe, and a big part of the American story of the West, Custer, of Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, the Founding Fathers, any of them, George Washington. We still have this great man philosophy or this great man sentiment. We could even say great women sentiment with Harriet Tubman. And I think in this poem, Whitman is struggling after seeing the Civil War and after seeing the horrendous choice of America to either embrace or facilitate slavery and how those experiences and those sins corrupted the idea of the individual spirit of individual initiative which was so contrasted between the Wild West, we have this idea of John Wayne, and we contrast that forthgoing, independent, pragmatic, individualist spirit with what so many African Americans had to go through under slavery. And Walt Whitman experienced the Civil War, and a lot of people think that World War One was what kicked off this, in some ways, nihilistic, collectivist, sobering perspective, where we don't expect great men like Teddy Roosevelt to be able to charge into battle and really affect anything. Because in World War One, when we think of like the Battle of the Somme, when the ratio, not the number, 
but the ratio of officers to proportional numbers of enlisted, the officers died even more than the enlisted men. And why was that? It was because a lot of European nations, particularly Britain, had this had this go get em spirit, had this charge against the odds spirit. And that might have worked in the warfare of old Europe, but under the barrage of the machine gun, it was obliterated. But I think it's a great point in one of these great course, great courses lectures on the Civil War is that a lot of commanders of World War I looked toward the Civil War as the beginning point for this type of warfare of just, un, to this point, unimaginable casualties at somewhere like Gettysburg. And what does, what does the Civil War, what does any Civil War do to any idea of the central united national ethos, an idea of we are all Americans, that, there is, that there's anything that does hold every American together. So, with all that said, let's go line by line. First line, O oh me, O oh life, of the questions of these recurring. So, the good thing about this kind of poetry is that it, it doesn't try to, I, I don't think usually it's obviously trying to deceive your intentions. It says things directly, and again, like I said in the introduction to that poem, this has been quintessential, quintessentially American. This pragmatic, direct, bare bones, without, without adornment type of rhetoric. Again, Hemingway, uh, Steinbeck, maybe F. Scott Fitzgerald, maybe not so much. But a lot of people were inspired by Hemingway. And I think it's he was inspired by people prior to him, like Walt Whitman. So, O me, O life, of the questions of these recurring. So, again, in the same way that Hamlet had this analysis paralysis, I think Whitman is talking about, keep asking these questions. And I think he's presenting this as a question that we might come to the end of this poem and find out that the reason you keep asking these questions is because they don't have an answer or that we're trying to overcomplicate the answer next next line of the endless trains of the faithless of cities filled with the foolish okay the endless trains of the faithless again this is something that Steinbeck shows beautifully in East of Eden is that what trains did to, to the United States, to the culture and society, the mobility of people between communities, it was re revolutionary. 
And we think of something like the Transcontinental Railroad that took people all the way from coast to coast. What does it mean when people load onto these trains? Is it noble? Or are they running from something? Are they cowards? Are they faithless? Or are they searching? Are they trying to find a new life? So right here he's this imagery of a train. Trains at this time were relatively new and impressive, monumental de developments in America. But he's saying the endless trains of the unfaithless and cities filled with the foolish. I think at this time also, America was in a, some way shifting from an agricultural Jeffersonian type of society to the city-based Hamiltonian uh, Big Apple kind of mentality. We have less so the small town farm mentality to New York City, to waves of immigration, new ideas. And we also have this idea that again Steinbeck shows in East of Eden that cities have, especially if you're in a biblical culture, there's this idea of cities being sinful inherently. Now whether that's right in reality or not, people tend to see cities as more crime infested, as more secluded, there's a lot more places for people to hide, there's, you're kind of anonymous in a city, there's this idea of you're never so much alone as one in a crowd, right? And so Whitman, someone who was part of the Transcendentalists, if not part of the Transcendentalists, thought of very highly by people like Emerson and Thoreau. And if you know anything about Thoreau, then you know Walden. There was this Transcendentalist mentality that wanted to go back to nature, back to a raw experience, the subjective transcendental. And that's involved in feeling at one with all other aspects of, would you say creation in this mode? You'd say all other aspects of yourself writ large, of the oversoul, as Emerson puts it. And so there's this back to nature philosophy, and they're seeing cities growing, they're seeing trains being laid down across the entire country. Nature's being tamed. And the cities are filled with the foolish. I like to think of this in a way that's, of course, all of the greatest achievements and greatest thoughts are going to be where the most people and the most activity is, I would imagine, at least in a simple way. But also, when you have so many ideas, but you don't pick one, you don't focus and align yourself with certain philosophies, lifestyles, you can become flippant. 
you can become a jack of all trades knowing many but knowing few deeply and I'm tempted to say this is what Whitman's talking about here he's talking about people that dip their toe in all aspects of wisdom but they are foolish because they're flittering around to everything they're not in, engrossing themselves in what would create what would create true wisdom and they're moving around so much that they can't put, put down roots of wisdom next line of of myself forever reproaching myself of myself forever reproaching myself so now he goes from this he's saying don't people suck aren't aren't people stupid aren't they flippant aren't they look at them doing all this stuff and then right after that i, I can imagine whitman sitting back and, and a, with a bit of satisfaction a little bit of resentment and thinking to himself oh no i'm one of those people aren't i and it's beautiful this transition this ability to critique others but then almost instinctively flip it back on yourself this is this is reflective of the principle do unto others as you would have done unto yourself if we judge others we will be judged in the same way to semi quote the bible and I think that that's not just some dogmatic statement, that is a reality. Because when we judge others, what is, what are, what do people instinctively do? They look back at you and they say, they look and they see if you can be judged along those same lines. And if you're a hypocrite, that's not going to end up very well as far as what you actually want to get out of that judgment. So Waltman here is saying, I'm one of these people, and I'm forever reproaching myself. For who more foolish than I, and who more faithless? For who more foolish than I, and who more faithless? There's this, um, just what pops in my head here is how so many um, religious sages really regardless of any religion that you're that I that I can think of are very are very um, self self-critical they think of themselves sometimes even they call themselves worms they call themselves the worst of sinners as Paul says and it can get pretty ridiculous at some points at least in my opinion and it can even be used as a shield so that you don't have to take accountability for things that you do but it's interesting when you look at someone like mother teresa and she and you read her letters when she's talking about she is the worst of these she is the worst sinner she has the worst guilt and we say what do you have to be you, what do you have to feel guilty about and then we also think about what makes a man virtuous? Could a man or a woman be virtuous if he believes 
he or she believes that, that they are virtuous. No, they, they have to be able to identify the vice in their life. And that involves sometimes a lot of guilt. And so, who more faithless? Next line. Of eyes that vainly crave the light. Of eyes that vainly crave the light. So now he's saying, so vain. What does vain mean here? Think of that song. You're so vain. It's it's self-indulgent. It's always looking back at yourself. And even what I was just talking about with the saints... They are self-effacing, they're self-critical, because they would like to be righteous. But I think the next line here that Whitman is saying is, he vainly craves the light. He craves virtue, righteousness, goodness. But he craves it because he wants to feel self-satisfied. And that's a very thin line to walk, right? That's a tightrope. I think about why I memorize these poems. Am I doing it for myself? There's times when I would like to think that, but that's obviously not true or else I wouldn't be putting these on a podcast that's accessible to other people. I don't advertise it, but do I care if people watch it? Or listen to it. Yeah, of course I do. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel, it makes me feel validated. Wanted. Right? So, something that, something that everyone struggles with. Vainly crave the light. Of the object's mean. The object's mean. So now, he's craving these light... And the objects of that light are mean. They're, they're not worthy of... They're not deep. They're kind of superficial. They're transitory. So we can think of this... Huh. I'm tempted in this context to just, to just talk about myself, but... If I were to memorize poems only to recite them at bars to try and go home with somebody would that object be mean would that be a or, or would it be superficial I would call that pretty superficial and so but I think in some ways that's not getting at the point because are the objects an aspect of the light so is he saying that he has this type of superficial idea of righteousness that he tries to, that he craves. I keep going back to the Bible because Jesus talks about say your prayers with the door closed. Don't be like the hypocrites who sing their prayers with everyone to hear. And so there's a question, are, are these prayers for yourself or are they performative? Do we do things 
of depth and hopefully of righteousness in order to be affirmed by others, other men. And Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. I don't think it's a bad thing to want to feel affirmed, wanted, validated by the right people. Hopefully we would like to feel appreciated and approved of by those we love and respect. And again, it is the end of my lunch. I will see you in a second. Alright. Hard day's work, huh? Yeah. On with the poem. If I can find it. Here we go. Okay, so... I think... I think I want to come at these last few lines that I ended with in a different way. Somewhat. So... Starting with eyes that vainly crave the light. I think light here, you could you could put it in a religious context with righteousness, goodness, uh, in that sphere. But I think I think I'd like to look at it in an intelligence kind of way, in a more scientific kind of way, in, uh, in an enlightenment kind of light and we can think of it as being we vainly crave the persona of being the kind of person with analytical answers being intelligent and the objects of that intelligence can be used in a superficial way so the primary principles of what I said about those kind of remain but then that got me thinking about this these two words at the beginning faithless and and faithless and foolish now faithless has a pretty strong religious connotation and then i was starting to think is foolish a religious sounding word is it or is it more secular? So maybe that's the distinction to make here is between the religious and the secular. Um, because there's this idea in America with someone like someone like Benjamin Franklin, who wrote this autobiography, and it's not really religious. It's extremely, it's about enlightenment in this enlightenment mindset as far as this era where we're kind of stepping away from superstition. But then I was also thinking that was there such a difference at this time that Whitman is writing between the religious and the secular? So did everything have a tinge or a flavor, an undertone of the religious? And at the same time, I think, keep that in mind, 
because when we get to the end of this poem, I think that comes into clearer focus with kind of where he goes with this. So, of the object's mean, of the struggle ever renewed, of the struggle ever renewed, I can't for the life of me uh, remember who this quote's from, but there's someone who says, I jump from longing to satisfaction to longing again to satisfaction back and forth and back and forth. And obviously we have this idea with the Buddha who wants to end the ceaseless striving in our souls, in our being. Maybe not souls, depending on if you're in certain types of Buddhism or not. But the struggle is ever renewed. Even when we satisfy ourselves, there's no... There's no ultimate satisfaction to be found in this world. Of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me. So of the poor results of all. This comes off as a bit cynical, doesn't it? Of the poor results of all. He doesn't say imperfect. He doesn't say unsatisfactory. He doesn't say somewhere in the middle ground. He says poor. And maybe what he means here is that ultimately all of our endeavors and our longings go unfulfilled and unsatisfied. Kind of this Ecclesiastes mindset. Vanity, all is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Which makes sense with him using vain in the earlier line. Man, hasn't Ecclesiastes spoken to so many people? <laughs> Even those who I meet that are extremely resentful towards religion, Christianity in particular, for for good and bad reasons. Many, many good reasons for a lot of people. But there's this attraction to the to the honest to the honest pessimism of Ecclesiastes. And heck, it doesn't even end anywhere that is satisfactory for someone who isn't a Christian. Even, even the Hebrews of that day, whoever wrote it, Kohelet, wherever he came from. Anyway, onward. Of the poor results of all, of the plotting and sordid crowds I see around me. So he goes from the struggle ever renewed. So there's this, there's this focus. There's this thing that we want, so at least we have direction and motivation. But then he goes to the poor results of all. So I think what he's saying here is that at a certain point, 
you get to a point where you, you, you look around you and everyone is apathetic. They're plodding. Think of this slow walking aimlessly and sordid, so sad, discontent. Thoreau speaks of the same kind of people at the beginning of Walden. He says, what does he say? Most men leave, lead lives of quiet desperation. Of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest. So, after we get to this point of apathy, the rest is empty and useless. And I wonder if he thinks that everyone at a certain age finds everything empty and useless. Next line, with the rest me intertwined. Again, he doesn't pull any punches with other people and his scorn, but then he brings it right back onto himself and says, I'm no better. I'm intertwined with these people. We think of it as a rope. Just every bit of us is interwound with each other. And there's no real distinction, at least essentially, between himself and those plotting and sordid crowds he sees around him. In the endless trains of the faithless and the cities of the foolish that he sees around him, he's no better. So, he finally gets to the question, oh me, so sad recurring, what good amid these Oh me, oh life, the question, oh me, so sad recurring, so sad recurring. So it's never, I, I don't think he's saying that this is a consistent state of sadness, but it always comes back around to sadness, to dissatisfaction to disappointment. So, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? I think about, when he says this, I think about adding, what good amid these, O oh little me, O oh little insignificant spark that is life, this little dust in the universe, this flower that blooms today and is gone tomorrow. What good amid these? Answer, period. That's something I got wrong in my recitation. Answer, period. And it's italicized. Now, there's got to be some deeper meaning to that. It's blunt. It's not the answer. It's answer, period. That you're here. That life exists and identity that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Here's this dry, <laughs> this, this dry, blunt, no-nonsense pragmatism that I was talking about with this era. After going through all of the 
wars in Europe, these religious wars that were based on ideology and complex theology, just layers and layers and layers of metaphysics piled on top of each other. And then um, America, who many see as the quintessential manifestation of the Enlightenment. This Enlightenment at which time, at least like the philosophes in France, rejected what they saw as superstition, as idle metaphysical banter. And they wanted to get they wanted to get to the here and now, the human, the sufferings that can be alleviated with our own hands and our own forces. Think back to Tolkien's response to this aspiration. He doesn't see this intention going in a good direction, ultimately. But Whitman and a lot of American writers and poets and artists. They took that no-nonsense, turning its back on superstition, and they give us these types of responses to this life of worry. And they say to us, answer, period, that you are here that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute to verse. That life exists and identity. So a lot of people would say, well, a lot of metaphysicians, metaphysicians, it's not the way to put it, but you know what I mean. They would come back at Whitman and say, well, how do you know that life exists? You haven't proved that what a priori truths are you inducing that from or are you deducing that from and there are some even in this day who would say that it's all an illusion you can't trust it you can't even trust your hand in front of your face let alone identity, what premise do we have to believe that any idea of identity is true? That how I think of myself isn't hopelessly deluded by external forces that are out of my control or internal forces that are incapable of even comprehending such a thing as truth. But this is the pragmatic response of those like Whitman who I'm sure have considered those questions and we get to the point where he says life exists and identity that I am me and it's different than any other person that we are who we are and it's different than them that we as humans have a certain innate identity that implies rights and value and sacredness some sort of sacredness 
it doesn't need to be explained it's assumed and it's beautiful to think about the preamble to the Declaration of Independence a little preview where it says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness that governments are instituted among men to secure these rights so it says these these are self-evident they're done arguing metaphysics they're done with all this ra rationalization they're saying these are self-evident because these are the preconditions by which we can have life that we can have identity And then he says, the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse. It's not so pragmatic, but he adds a little beauty in the end there. Well, it's interesting to see how these seemingly simplistic poems can open up to at least myself. Um, I was surprised. And next time it'll it will be on to back over the back over the pond, back to England to Tennyson. And that'll be Ulysses lines one through one one twenty seven. See you later.